I'm Susie Gerhardt, and you're listening to Grotto Pod. Today's guests are Julia Scott and David Ewing Duncan. Both journalists have done significant work in science, health, and self-experimentation. David's latest in a long line of outside-the-box science books is the topic of conversation today. It's Talking to Robots, Tales from Our Human Robot Futures. Julia Scott is interviewing David here in the booth. She's a noted radio and print journalist, and she's covered health science and the environment, among other topics, in places like NPR and the New York Times. I encourage you to search out her terrific personal hygiene experiment in New York Times Magazine. Both are longtime members here at the Writer's Grotto, and I'm so happy to welcome them in today for this uh, science-y chat. Hi, David. Hey, Julia. <laughs> nice to uh, nice to talk to you about your book. I went to your book launch a couple months ago for talking to robots, tales from our human robot futures, and loved the chapter that you read us uh, at the time. I think it was Teddy Bot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that uh, as we talk about your book. I've told you this already personally, but I'll, I definitely want to say it here and have it be the first thing I say. One of the things I love the most about this fantastic and fascinating book is the freedom that you gave yourself to explore the question of what our human robot future will be like by going beyond the simple kind of dualism of fiction or nonfiction. Um, You used a really fascinating new format to explore these questions of what our future could be like depending on the choices we make in the present. And I I've sort of been thinking about this expression, the future is already here, and the idea that you've used a kind of near future present tense in your book that opens up a lot of possibilities for how you could explore these questions. So I was wondering if you could start off by talking about some of the different things that you did in this book and why you made those choices. No, that's great. And yeah, the William Gibson quote is is definitely apropos, you know, the future is already here, it's just that evenly distributed. And I think that... You know, I didn't think of that quote when I was writing the book, but that is partly uh, what's happening in the way I'm thinking about the, the future. In fact, I think we're living in a moment where the past and the present and the future seem to be colliding in, in really profound ways, and we can talk about that more. But what I did in the book was, well, I often write books or articles when I get frustrated about something. And I got frustrated about being a nonfiction writer and writing about technology and especially a lot of science technology in the future. All these amazing, you know, new technologies, uh, what could go right, what could go wrong. But I have to stop as a nonfiction writer with reality, like where we are right now. And I can talk about or speculate about the future. Um, But I've been, you know, dabbling in fiction off and on throughout my career. So I thought why not actually just say what happens or make it up um, in terms of fiction and really play that out, but, you know, base it on, in fact, how we as humans have received technology, how it's worked out, how it hasn't worked out. And so basically there are 24 robots in this book, and there's a warrior bot, there is a teddy bear bot, uh, there's a doctor bot, uh, there's a sex bot, all these different bots. And I report on them like I would as a nonfiction writer, you know, what's going on today, and I interview people just like I would in a regular magazine piece or a nonfiction book. But it's wrapped in a fictional story. So each one of them is told from the future by this unnamed narrator. And it could be a man or a woman or a human or maybe even a robot. But this narrator in the future knows how things turn out, which is kind of cool. And once I sort of 
develop that conceit, I then pushed it to even another level, um, which is there are different futures. So in some cases for these robots, things turn out well in the future. Some cases they don't. And I did try to write full-blown, plot-driven, you know, fictional stories. So it was kind of fun. And the result is this mishmash of fiction and I, what I would call, I think, speculative nonfiction to muse about our robot future, but it's written as if almost a history book was passed down to us from the future. And for the purposes of this, you know, this conversation, maybe it would be helpful to clarify that a robot is anything that uses smart tech in its hardware or programming. So we're not talking about the kind of stereotypical you know, robot um, that maybe some people think of when they, they think of, you know, a cartoon or, you know, the kinds of robots that are being created today that, you know, kind of walk or talk to us or or maybe they, we are just talking about that kind of robot as well. No, that's right. And, you know, it's AI systems. I mean, a lot of the, like, warrior bot is about automated warfare, basically. And it's, you know, it's it's literally, I don't know, tens of thousands of systems probably or even more, um, and most of them are not, well, uh, uh, you know, almost none of them are the classic robots like, you know, we would see in like Forbidden Planet or Lost in Space or the Jetsons. I mean, that's one of the things, by the way, I get into in the book. It's, it's there's a collision. Again, it's this past, present, future. It's kind of how we're imagining all these things, uh, especially as technology moves so fast. And we often through fiction, through television, through popular culture, imagine the future. And it's been going on now long enough. It probably started in a kind of modern context in the 19th century with Jules Verne and some authors like that. Um, but it's funny to go to Tomorrowland in Disneyland because that was the vision of tomorrow 50 or 60 years ago. And there was even a brief um, exhibit they had at, I think, Disney World about uh, how people back in the 50s were envisioning the future. And it did include robots, and like Rosie the Robot and Jetsons. But my sense is that I'm just using that partly because I find artificial intelligence to be a somewhat cumbersome and not very precise term. Uh, not that robots is, but I think that's a way to encapsulate not only the reality of these very smart or becoming very smart, sophisticated machines and technologies, but also our sense of what they might be, this kind of popular culture view of where we are with robots. I'm curious about, you know, when you say that you were dissatisfied with how we think about what affects this technology could have on our future, the way that journalism approaches these questions now, do, do you have a story about where the idea for this book came from in light of the kinds of, I would say, bleeding edge journalism that you've been pursuing for several decades around what uh, the biotech or life tech future looks like for us? You know, at what point did you decide, okay, the way that we have of telling these stories doesn't quite work? And when did you decide we needed something else? Well, there's different sort of layers to an answer to that question. I mean, one of them is almost a technical side or, you know, the, the side of me being a professional writer. Um, I mean, we're still operating in this era of what was called the new journalism or creative nonfiction, which, you know, has been around for a long time, but it kind of came into its own and, and you know, it changed the way, say, newspaper writing, magazine writing was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, and, um, you know, Tom Wolfe, um, people like that, you know, invented this new style, which 
to me, you know, it's been a style I used most of my career. Uh, you know, you set scenes. You there's certain ways you write them. You know, you talk about the atmospherics. You describe the characters almost as if it was fiction, and that's still an incredibly vibrant style. But I find it somewhat constraining at times, except in the hands of the best writers. They, I mean, they they can make anything sound great. But it's almost formulaic at this point, and you know, I think in some ways. I was trying to kind of break through that a little bit and try a new way of talking about, uh, like I said, this period we're in where the past, present, and future are sort of colliding. And and I'm talking politically, I'm talking artistically. I mean, we have retro everything, even politics right now. And, and yet we're talking about the future like we started the talk here. You know, the future's everywhere. Um, so I thought of it a, almost like this narrator, it's maybe me, I don't know, maybe it's a future version of me, trying to talk to the present about what's happening. And it's it's almost a device, well, it is a device about trying to talk about the present, like say I would in a column, because uh, this is all opinion, you know, it's all commentary, basically. Using this voice of somebody who knows what, what happened. And it's a little pretentious, I suppose, but um, it also is a is an interesting way to speculate on what might happen. I think in a just in a different style. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that different style and maybe use a passage from the book to illustrate it. I'm wondering if I could trouble you to read from the book. Sure. Do you have a section in mind? Or yeah, one yeah. one that, that shows, I think, both the style and a little bit of the thesis you're working with about humans' current enthusiasm around this idea that our robot future will involve full automation and the tension in that, which I think is a tension that kind of moves through this whole book. Um, yeah, and by the way, uh, when I'm talking about the style... Uh, and trying to inform the present from the future, you know, in this sort of fictional way, in a way. It is trying to get at a lot of the issues like you just mentioned. I mean, I, I think we are part of this past, present, future collision or whatever's happening here um, is, you know, we have some very profound issues that have always been with us as humans. I mean, actually, we've had automation for a long time. Um, you know, we've got all kinds of issues swirling around, uh, you know, politically, uh, et cetera. But they're taking on, I think, a little more, it's more critical that we understand them now because we're actually designing machines that can help us, supposedly, but they could also get it wrong. And we see that all the time when our computers crash or things. I mean, these, these are still very delicate systems. So I think we're at a particular time where we have to get this right and more than we have before. We've kind of been able to be sloppy and make mistakes in the past and still survive. This could be different with what we're doing as we're programming these machines. Um, so, I'll read this here. So, even if we had given the, the human-plus-machine people their due and had wished really hard for their vision of the world to happen, nothing that anyone did could stop the gradual disappearance of 46.8% of all jobs in 2035. And this is, as I set up the story, this is, there are people that are, there are people saying that we're going to, everybody's going to lose their job and right now, and there are people saying that, no, that won't happen, you know, we'll, we'll figure out a way to work with the machines. So in this, in this future, um, actually everybody ends up losing their job, everybody on the planet, but this has been 2035. And several years later, the loss of every job on the planet. It turned out that the smart people making machines wouldn't or perhaps couldn't stop. They were hardwired to want to automate everything because the tech was just so damn cool. 
and because they could. Investors also wanted their ROIs returned on investments, while the owners of companies that bought the bots did their calculations and found that robots were cheaper and easier to deal with than humans. Yeah. So, you know, I, I as I read the book, it, it seemed pretty obvious that, you know, there weren't a lot of stories here where humans drive to program autonomous bots that no longer need human hands or, or a set of human ethics or human eyes to oversee them, that that works well, especially when they're intended to replace us instead of augmenting us. Just to take some examples from the book, it doesn't work out well for us in DocBot or uh, WarriorBot or Robot Driver or um, the chapter you just read from, which is the goddamn robot that swiped my job bot. Um, and, and so in each case, you tell a story in which there's a common thread where we need to actually claw back control before it's too late at some point in the future. So would you say this book constitutes a warning in a sense? I hope so. I mean, you know, I think um, a lot of my writing has been trying, it's just trying to flesh out and say things, especially in this sort of you know, hothouse environment uh, in Silicon Valley where everybody is hyping all the positive and, and you know, I, I call it techno-optimism. I'm not the only one that uses that term. But it's almost a blithe techno-optimism. And so, you know, I, I find my role often to be, as a writer, you know, as a journalist and a, you know, kind of an investigative journalist, to call out um, what what can go wrong. And I'm no different than anyone else, you know, finding a lot of these technologies very cool. I mean, you know, I use my phone all the time, you know, but I'm giving a talk right now on why we love and, and fear technology. Um, but, um, you know, it, 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 it's a warning, but hopefully by writing about it now, you know, actually having scenarios where things go horribly wrong, it can uh, help us almost as a thought experiment think about these things. And by the way, I don't buy into entirely the whole way dystopic view. We have this, I call it technophrenia. We have this weird situation where we love parts of our technology. You know, I mean, we sleep with our phones. Uh, you know, we, we can't even imagine life without our phones, even though we've only had them a few years, the smartphones. Um, but at the same time, we go home and we watch Westworld and we watch, you know, all these incredibly dystopic uh, programs on um, on Netflix and others, and there's something going on there where you know we kind of know what what could go wrong, and we fear it. And I don't know if we're just working it out to to kind of make us less anxious or if it's making us more anxious. Yeah, there's a pleasure button there, and yeah. there's a fear button there, and they keep getting pressed next to each other. Yeah. It's the same thing I think that explains why we also make Armageddon movies constantly. Yeah. I mean, how many ways can we destroy the earth and die and, right. you know... But there's always one of us that survives. I know, I know. And, you that's, know, and that's, there's a story. You that's know. maybe the point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the more poignant moments of the book for me was, it appears in the chapter, I, I'm going to paraphrase the name of it, probably do a bad job, but it's something like, it's not all about the bot, bot. It's a question that comes from the past, uh, meaning our present, being asked of... The, the far future, which is, can you tell us, future people, who will be more important in the future, humans or robots? And in that chapter, you show how that may be the wrong question. And this is the chapter on Dean Kamen. And basically, you talk about how technology is a neutral force that can be used for good and evil. And he has this vision 
that we could all work together to use the shared language of math and science to tackle problems that affect everything around us and everyone around us, like you know, global hunger and climate change. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that question. Sure. I mean, by the way, I talked to people like Dean Kamen, uh, Kevin Kelly, Brian Green, the physicist. Uh, I call them my human collaborators. And I ask all of them the same question, which is what kind of robot would you like to meet in the future or be afraid of meeting? And in some cases, I try to shape it a little bit if it was a particular topic, but mostly I just let them. And some, this is one that I asked Dean Kamen, and I had no idea what, how he was going to answer that. It surprised me what he said, though. Um, although if you know him, it's not as big a surprise um, that it's not about the robot bot. And that's something that he has spent his life being a major inventor, you know, probably one of the world's great inventors, trying to emphasize that technology it's not a neutral force. It's it's actually what he calls amplification. So, I mean, your glasses amplify your ability to be able to see. That's a good thing. Um, you know, a lot of the machines we use amplify things to help us, and we, we wouldn't even know what to do without them. Uh, but it can also amplify it for really horrible things, too. Um, and so that's why it's not about the robot uh, means to Dean Kamen. It's really about humans being humans and trying to be the best humans we can be, but recognizing, and this is a big theme in the book and big theme in my, my life, really, that I think about a lot, that humans can be extraordinarily noble on the one hand and, you know, sacrificing themselves for others. They can also be extraordinarily evil and do the most vile and horrific things that we can possibly imagine. And they, you know, we're the same species. And so in thinking about these machines, um, as we're designing them and programming them, you know, which way is it going to go? I mean, it kind of depends on who programs them, what they program them for. But Dean started something called FIRST Robotics. And this is a global, it's almost like an Olympics of kind of mostly geeky high school kids who compete literally from 80 nations. It's all over the, all over the planet. And there's a set of instructions to build these crazy robots. And then they have competitions where they fly to different places and they're local. They start at the high school level. And but you aren't graded on like who builds the best robot, and they're actually they play sports games, so they compete with using the robots, and they're and they're not, you know, judged on well, score. I mean, they keep score, but um, it's judged on cooperation and you know who gets along. And it sounds a little la la land, except that it really works. I mean, you know, you have kids from you know warring countries that are competing with each other, and they're working together. Um, you know, Arabs and Israelis, um, there was a group of Afghani women and, you know, women in Afghanistan have had a you know, horrible, horrible time, you know, in the Taliban era. And they, these high school girls came from a little town in Afghanistan. And in fact, they, when they got their robot instructions and their parts to put together their robot for the competition, uh, it was blocked at the airport because they thought it was going to terrorists. But they managed to, to find the parts. They built these robots. They ended up coming to, trying to come to Washington, D.C., and were blocked because of bans, you know, uh, visa bans. And this was a huge deal. It actually made the international news, and uh, the State Department in the U.S. finally backed off and let them come. And then they, you know, but what a story. And that's using technology in a positive way. And again, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that something like that might actually save us, but it's, it's a very nice story. And I did want to make a very important point in there that it's really not about the robots and Dean helped me with that and yeah I love that story because it does start 
you know, some, in the future, people are startled. This message comes from the past. They didn't, you know, people in the future didn't even know if the technology existed to send a message through time. And the question was, what's more important, the humans or the robots in the future? And I won't say the ending, but it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's great. I really, really like that one. Um, this is a book that, that's not afraid to have a little bit of fun. And also, it's not afraid to wade into politics. There's a very interesting chapter in which you speculate whether our current president might actually be a robot. Well, actually, in the future, we discover that there are... In the future, there are essentially robots who want to run for office and they want to get to vote. And, you know, it's an interesting reflection in a way on, on um, you know, various people who have the rights or the rights taken away from them in, in you know, in the past, in our present and in the past. Um, so, you know, robots become, you know, basically clamoring to have equal rights and, and to be able to run for president. And in the midst of all that, we suddenly discover through a tell-all book um, by Bob Woodward, who is still alive. He's actually a robot. He's been transformed into a robot. So he's still writing these books about Washington. And he informs us that he has discovered that there had been in the past a robot president, and it was Donald Trump. You heard it here first, folks. I encourage you all to pick up this wonderful book. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, David, for coming in. That's our show for today. Pot is produced by me, Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner. The music is by Sugartown. Pot is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Pot in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.